The Packet Pushers are live streaming with cloud networking vendor Alkira on April 22nd, 2021. Sign up, attend live, and get your questions about clean sheet networking for the cloud era answered. Visit packetpushers.net slash livestream to register. That's packetpushers.net slash livestream. Today on Heavy Networking, Network Automation Workflow. For our show today, that means the process of creating a configuration artifact, auditing devices to see if they are already configured with this artifact and making it so if they are not. Let's take an example here. Let's say you have an NTP standard for all your network devices. That NTP standard would drive a configuration artifact, some chunk of CLI configuration stanza or API calls or Ansible playbook that make your network device use NTP, in this example, the way that you want. Now, you can have a library of config artifacts governing things like SNMP config and AAA and logging and on and on the list would go. Well, how do you make sure all of these artifacts, these golden config standards, are running on all your network devices? You, you could check them by hand. We've all done that. Ouch. Uh, that's fairly impractical at scale. And besides, a robot can do that job a lot better. And therefore, we need an automated workflow. Now, if you've dug into this kind of technology, there is a lot to a workflow system like this, and there's no one right, correct, ultimate way to do it. There are a lot of commercial network automation tools that can do this for you, for example, but it's also possible to roll your own. And we're going to focus on that solution today. Our guest today is Steve Paluka, and he's been working with an automation workflow system that leverages GitLab and Jenkins, among other tools, to make sure the network devices he supports are your gold. Steve, welcome back to Heavy Networking. You were one of the guests on our recent roundtable discussion, so it's nice to have you back and dive into this topic a bit. So Steve, I want to I want to start by understanding a bit about your your network and kind of kind of where you started, you know, as a network needing automation, what was what kind of tools were you using, what was going on there? TQE Communications has been doing some level of automation now for for over 10 years, you know, long before I joined the the company. As a matter of fact, two of my coworkers, you know, Ivan and Paul, uh, were co-authors on a, on a Juniper book on Python automation. So <laughs> this has been something that's been happening for a while. And uh, it's been in pieces. You know, we have a specific problem, like everybody does, you know, and, and you you write a script that solves that problem. And then you, before you know it, you've got a library of, of scripts running that help you with either configuration or deployments or other, other things of that nature. Sanity checking things and so on. Yeah, I, Python for 10 years, I guess. That's interesting. 10 years ago, I probably would have been dabbling in... Perl, TCL, expect uh, things like that. Python wasn't even on my radar. So these folks were early adopters of, uh, of Python, it sounds like. Absolutely. So it started growing from there. You know, one one of the things we realized about four years ago was that uh, infrastructure as code was becoming more and more of a thing. And so one of the things we needed to do was to be able to track configurations. So using the Oxidize platform, we deployed to do backups. So one of our senior engineers found that tool, deployed it on the on the network, and then uh, that solved two problems for us. It gave us regular backups that were easy to replace devices when they when they failed, and then it also started doing a uh, tracking uh, of the changes that happened on the devices over time. So we would have that that reference there. So so version control then. 
Yes. Yeah, because Oxidize stores everything in GitLab, and we were using GitLab in our development group. We have a you know a set of developers that do the in-house programming, so it was an easy step to just you know create a repository, and now all of a sudden you know every device on the network has a version controlled configuration on it. Now you also said GitLab and not GitHub. Uh, can you say what drove that choice one way or the other? Uh, that's really just a semantic thing. They're essentially the same, but GitLab is the name they use for the on-premises when you run your own server and you're you're totally private and you don't trust the rest of the world. And you know, GitHub's when you you're putting it out there on the the public internet server, but it's just, it's the same thing. Yeah, effectively it is the same. I I, I know that, uh, but I know people that are very particular because they accomplish the same goal. I mean, I, but there are people that really seem to really like GitLab and I haven't had a chance to fiddle with it much um, at this point, but anyway. Okay. So you, you have a, a, a group of folks that are automation savvy. They've been using Python Oxidize as the platform to pull configs and give you a bit of uh, version control, saving historic configurations up to GitLab. Uh, what else? Give us uh, some more about your your environment. Well, we we've been doing IPAM with uh, BlueCat, so that gives us the IP management platform that has a full API and has some automation tools with it. So it makes it easy for us when we're in the process of deploying things to get the next available subnet, to use things uh, on the network that are required for that. It's also a DHCP system. So we had some things like the UPSs that are running on a DHCP and we uh, we track then which address they pulled and reserve it and label things for them. And that's an all automated process. The scripting host is also running separately, you know, running both Python and we've used Ansible in some scenarios because it's a simpler way to, you know, run the the playbooks on rather than a full script when, when necessary because of the built-in tools. And then our developers had had been doing in-house work for a while, and so they, they were running um, a message bus, the, the MQ message bus, to pass information back and forth between the internal applications and our dashboard and things that run internally. So we were able to leverage that as well for passing messages between scripts and went on a multi-step process type okay, of thing. You just, you just outlined a lot of things here that are fairly substantial <laughs> that most people don't get as a starting point to build some some things here. So, so okay. So, so Blue Cat as your IPAM source of truth, you're not using Excel to figure out what the next uh, DHCP scope you should be dishing out. Are you going to Blue Cat and saying, "Hey, I need a slash twenty four. I need whatever," and it, it's giving that to you programmatically and then tracking it inside its own database. Yeah, yeah, like a regular IPAM solution. BlueCat's yeah. uh, similar to any of the other ones as well. Yeah. Uh, you also said message bus. So I'll tell you what that means to me. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. When I when you say message bus, I think of a pub-sub architecture where you've got some providers that are publishing information to the bus and then some consumers that are attaching to the message bus and subscribing to the various feeds that show up on it. And so you said an internal app that are internal apps that are sending messages onto the bus and then you've got... Uh, network management systems that can pull those messages off the bus. Is that, am I in the ballpark? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So a specific example of that would be the the script that um, one of my coworkers, Ivan, wrote for the UPS deploys. So 
there's a lot of steps in that process. We have to build a service to the local thing. We have to uh, configure the UPS itself. It gets a an IP address uh, from the from the IPAM. Each of those things is a separate little piece of the of the process, uh, but each one has to happen in a particular order. So, when the first uh, thing comes up, it gets an IP address. So you know, grab that IP address, reserve it in IPAM, figure out where that device is. Then you put a message on the bus um, and the next piece of the puzzle picks it up and says, okay, there's brand new UPS out there. I got to see if it's configured or not. And if it's not configured, go ahead and configure it with all the the standard things. When that's done, uh, well, actually the the next step is to create the service there so we can reach it. Uh, but there's a whole step of, of processes and the bus allows each piece to say, I'm done with my part and the next piece to say, pick it up and I'm going to do my piece of that process. Message bus would be the only way that you could get this kind of thing done. Cause you're, you're talking about this dependency of one task needs to complete something. Another task needs to know that that's done so that it can now go and do its thing. Or I guess uh, maybe be triggered. It sounds like there's maybe some triggering going on there where if something appears on the bus, oh, I know I need to go do something because this event exactly. has happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and we also use, the, the reason it was deployed in the first place is for event-driven things. So OpenNMS publishes uh, you know a link down event in there and then that gets picked up and processed and sent to a dashboard with whatever priority is required based on what that link is. <laughs> All right. So you're in an environment that's been pro-automation for a long time, about a decade. There sounds like there's some, I don't want to say complexity, but there's at least several moving pieces that are going on here that are foundational to the, the, the workflow system that you've built. Is that reasonable? Yeah. Yeah. Each of these are kind of a, an additional step on this automation journey. Everybody mm. says they're on, you know. <laughs> Yeah, we're all on a journey, Steve. That's right. Yeah, we're on the we're on the Appalachian Trail of That's automation. Right. <laughs> yeah, two thousand miles. Of- <laughs> exactly. Okay, the last piece of the puzzle that you described, I want to make sure I get. You said a scripting host that runs both Python and Ansible. Is that as simple as it's like an Ubuntu VM sitting out there? That's kind of your your master that runs this stuff, or do you mean something else by scripting host? No, that's that's exactly right. We're we're a Red Hat shop, so you know Red Hat and CentOS uh, is, is running on these things. We try to get supported uh, work on the ones that are critical. Hey, Ubuntu supported. You've heard of Stack Overflow, right? <laughs> okay. Google's my support, right? Oh, there yeah, you go. Yeah, there you go. Okay, okay. So lots and lots of moving pieces that have all been part of your your the early part of your automation appellation trail here. Give us a sense of the network you're trying to manage with with all of these pieces. Is this a big network, small? Uh, well, I guess size is relative to your your perspective, but we're a regional um, DQE Communications is a regional service provider. So in scope, we've got about eighteen hundred devices currently deployed, and it's been growing over over time. You know, we're cutting in new devices every week, and physically, it's pretty spread apart. You know, there's a two hundred mile spread between devices from one end of the network to to the other. So this is not like a data center. I can walk in and touch everything. So this is is this an eyeball network? 
Uh, we're mostly business to business. So okay. it's um, internet services and ethernet services for, for businesses. But, but as it's a, based as a, on NPLS. <laughs> got it. A regional, regional SP. So, uh, right. And in the scale of global providers, you would be small, but for, for most people, this is a, a fairly sizable network. 1800 devices spread out over these uh, 200 mile regional area, right? And big enough that you don't want to be jumping in the car because you just bricked something, uh, et cetera. Right. And and there's 14 different device types deployed. So there's some variety for fun. So would that be like you've got some some kind of core aggregation devices doing some like MPLS heavy lifting and then out at the edge you've got some kind of uh, you know, PE and CE facing devices? Yeah, it's all it's all about um, scale. You know, you know, obviously devices in the in the pops and in the data centers are are bigger than devices on just a single customer edge and those sorts of things. So you know, we've got a nice mix going on. Now, these models are they all from the same vendor? So you have a common API or CLI? Yeah, this is this is the stuff from from the Juniper vendor. So this is the you know the what the scope of this project was for, and and that's the bulk of our network. But we do have um, you know three other vendors stuff deployed as well. So it's not like a pure system. But for purposes of this conversation, we're in the we're in the Junos world. Right, right. We're in the we're in the Junos world with you know fourteen device variations. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but a fairly consistent interface to uh, to code to from an uh, from an infrastructure as code perspective, right? Oh yeah, yeah. That's the major advantage that that provides for us, for sure. You know, yeah. if, the, if the features there, it's configured the same. Yeah, yeah. That's, I guess the big confusion in the quote unquote one Junos world. Everybody thinks you know. You initially hear one Junos, and you say, "Oh, everything works everywhere." It's like, no. If it's there, it's the same. It's yes. not like in your Cisco world where my configuring a, a VLAN is three different ways on three different devices in my network. <laughs> no, I, I was never a huge Juniper consumer, but I have worked with MX and SRXs at uh, one uh, one network I supported, and if either the SRX or the MX had it, it was identical, you know, identical code to configure that thing. But no, not both platforms had all the same features, not at all. Different chips inside, different and different targets, different things that those boxes were doing. And so there were different things that they could or couldn't do, depending on which they were. So. Right. And a lot of your complications, especially in things like class of service, get driven by the chipset, you know. <laughs> yes. All right, so you've got this uh, largest network with 1,800 plus devices, a bunch of different, 14 different Juniper device models in there. They've been deployed over time. I'm guessing if you're a service provider, a lot of these things have, are long lived. You're not swapping stuff out every year. So you've probably got machines that are five and even more years old, yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, as long as it's supported and working, and in some cases, yeah, well beyond uh, supported. <laughs> so... So let's talk now. I mean, just from a practical standpoint, any network engineer can kind of think through various problems that are likely to show up dealing with configuration management of these devices. Can you talk through some of the specific challenges you were facing managing this environment? 
Yeah. So the the problem we were starting to see was, you know, this the you know over a ten year period that these devices are being deployed, there's been changes made to the requirements from our various provisioning platforms for the service level. You know, particularly for the gory details of a service. You know, the the exact way class of service is applied or policing is done or these these types of things. So. There's changes made over time. Well, you know, you have hundreds of devices deployed before that change was proposed and, and made. So then you got to figure a way to go back and uh, is this does this change apply to those previously deployed ones? And if it does, you know, how do we consistently get it out there so that uh, so that the the change can you know the benefits of that change can happen to the existing network and then at the same time you got to make sure going forward your your new devices you know all meet the new standard so for the old devices the solution is an intern right you just bring them bring them on for free and say <laughs> you don't mess up but you need to no i mean right so you're you're in a situation where devices that have the functionality but that functionality has evolved like you mentioned class you know qos stuff class of service and policing for example put the policer has evolved you want to tweak the the way you're doing policing across the fleet and you're not logging into 1800 devices one at a time or however many hundred are impacted and doing that by hand so how do you push the new way of delivering uh, a policer on these devices out to all those and make sure they're consistent exactly so you know if we're trying to scope the the you know the level of the problem the drift that's occurred over time with the the various changes that we've made and how to identify what devices are in which state right now and that sort of thing. Is it even more complex than that in that depending on what flavor of Junos you might be running, the new flavor of you know command or configuration tweak you want might not be supported on certain devices? Well, yeah, since a lot of these things are around policing and class of service, the config is simply different depending on the chip that's running, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Under the hood here, so um, you know, so that structure is um, you know is a, is a little a little complicated. Yeah, which if you're listening to this and you've been trying to teach yourself QoS on a virtual lab, this is one of those situations where hardware matters, and so the number of QoS features you're going to have in a virtual lab are probably pretty limited. Um, in fact, I just bought myself a couple of uh, a switch and a router just to do shoot some QoS lessons because you got to have the hardware. And as you said, Steve, it really does change uh, based on what the chip is, how many queues are available, what queuing structures you uh, might be doing and so on. So, so that's interesting. That's an interesting problem set because now you've got a problem of, you're not just pushing this piece of code blindly to a device. You have to know what the device is and understand whether it's going to be able to handle that change uh, before you try to push the change through is uh, how do you tackle that problem? Yeah. So, so what we had to come up with first was the, you know, this, this process for creating and, and maintaining the common config that has to go out there. You know, how are we going to know what that config is and know where it applies? Um, so since we're, a, you know, a GitLab user, you know, obviously, you know, the config fragments could be in a repository and we can look at organizing that repository for it. But we have to dig into the gory details across all the devices deployed and see, you know, what needs to what needs to be applied where in this. 
So it's not just maintaining a config, it's maintaining multiple configs that could be relevant depending on the hardware-software combo it's being deployed on. Exactly, yeah. Pausing the episode for a quick ad spot about something cool we Packet Pushers are doing. On April 22nd, 2021, we're live streaming with Alkira. Alkira is a cloud networking vendor, and to them, cloud networking isn't just connecting your users to the cloud. It is also about end-to-end governance and policy management, transitioning to multi-cloud, supporting data center migrations, security delivered by a cloud firewall and zero-trust posture. And that Alkira feature set, that means they think they've got an alternative to SD-WAN and MPLS. Ooh, that's a big claim. So is Alkira really all that? Well, that's what we're going to talk through in the live stream. Help make this discussion great by showing up and asking your questions. Now, you need to register for the event so you can participate, but the way we do it, no one will follow up with you unless you opt in to be contacted. To register for the live stream with the Packet Pushers and Alkira happening April 22nd, hit packetpushers.net slash livestream. That's packetpushers.net slash livestream. That will redirect you to a Zoom webinar reg page, and from there, you know what to do. Thank you for being a part of our community, and we hope to see you virtually on April 22nd. Well, well, let's, let's step back a second. How do you define, how do you create your golden config chunk, your artifact, as I was talking about in the intro, you just go into the lab and kind of like, okay, we've got it. This is the one, that kind of thing. Or is there a different process? Well, a lot of it was provided by two main paths. The the one is the, the vendors that we're working with that do the provisioning platforms, you know, because, you know, we're provisioning end-to-end services for for clients and, and there's validated things from the provisioning vendor that they're saying, we're pushing out this config, but this config we're pushing out assumes you have common config <laughs> on, on devices end-to-end across the network so that it actually works, you know. And so they're validating what needs to be based on, you know, chipset and, and device that's, that's, that's across the, the network. And as you mentioned, you know, Junos is common uh, if the if a config exists. So that now there's these nuances that occur based on the device type, you know, the, the model of the device type from Juniper based on the version of Junos that we're running, which we're pretty consistent on across the board. Uh, and also based on what chip is uh, the underlying forwarding chip in that device too. So out of the, you know, 14 independent models, uh, when we did our evaluation, there ended up being seven device categories uh, of, of unique configuration that was involved. Then we could start working from there. Okay. So you have to, this, and now you've defined, these are the seven uh, configuration artifacts we need to have created that all end up doing the same thing or roughly the same thing. Well, it's a little more, a little more complicated than that because mm. if it were simple, it wouldn't be any fun. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, there's seven device categories, but some of the, because it's, because it's Juno, some of those commands are the same across all the categories. Um, um, so what we started to do is is uh, a lim- organize the config types into groups. So we identified eight different groups of configurations, and a group might be class of service, another group might be the management 
um, things on the device. And when we combined <coughs> the eight types of configuration that we're dealing with, with the seven specific devices, we ended up with 18 uh, model groups. And a model group is a unique set of configuration because one of the things we realized in terms of maintaining this is we, um, the developers told us about this principle called speak once. <laughs> mm -hmm. what, you, what you wanna do in your Git repositories is have one and only one place where you make a change. So that if I'm gonna change the way I configure, say, SSH going into a device, I wanna change that in one and only one place in a Git repository, and it successfully goes everywhere it needs to go. Okay, you, you're helping me put this together here because you actually had lost me for a second because we started at 14 device models, <laughs> then went to seven config artifacts, and now we're up to 18 things. But well, I think what I heard you say Basically, there's Lego bricks involved. You have to identify each unique little Lego brick that you're going to snap together and deliver mm -hmm. as, a, as a full artifact out to a device. Right. So the speak once principle, you know, me, uh, that's important because you know this isn't final. Nothing's ever final. You are going to change it at a random time in the future. So what you don't want to have to do is figure out, I've got to change this in three places. But this one I got to change in five places, and that one I got to change in two places. <laughs> so you'll end up with a like a, a framework or a template for a given document that's referring out to the one single unique thing that you might need to pull in there. Exactly. So we're creating speak once means there's one and only one place every command in this collection goes. And then what we we're doing is organizing them in a way between these configuration groups. So they logically make sense. So if we're going to go change something in management, we're going to go to the management group and we're going to make the changes there. Uh, but we have to divide them up into these model groups. So we created a chart, which basically has the, the seven devices across the columns. And then down the left, uh, the, the rows is the, uh, the name we gave um, the unique model group. So if, uh, for example, the, you know, you know, model group one um, gets applied to virtually everything. <laughs> so if it's a command that goes on absolutely everything, it's in, you know, group one. Group two uh, were commands that went in like, like six of the, uh, you know, of the, of, the you know, of the models. And we had a checkbox. So now we have a, a grid that has rows of, of configs and columns indicating which devices that config will be put on. All to get you to a point where you're delivering a final uh, service, I guess, like, like we've been using COS or policers as a couple of services mm -hmm. you might be delivering there. Right. So this organizes it um, that way. And then this, this grid um, is also then maintained in, in our Git repository so that we have, uh, you know, we, we know what they are called and what they're for. And they're also then an artifact that, uh, that could be used in generating the artifacts. 
Now, okay, we, we need to get to the, the generating the artifacts bit here, but I want to park on models for a second. You're using models in the context of you have these Juniper boxes that are out there in this network, and there's the with various version, various physical devices with various versions of Junos running that um, you know, kind of result in this spread. But models from a network automation perspective can also mean like uh, like a Yang model, where you're mm-hmm. you've defined exactly how a BGP service is to be delivered, for example. So does that kind of modeling uh, also factor into anything you're doing? Uh, that that factors into how we're organizing the um, the specific file that's going into the repository. So I have a file in the repository for for class of service. So maybe you know we use the term model group um, for this row. So if you think of a column being the actual device model. There's a specific column for every every device model. The rows are unique sets of model groups. How many are this command actually works on and should be deployed to? And there's literally a checkbox there. So we ended up with 18 unique model groups where you know one or more get this specific command. And uh, and then the file name is this um, this configuration group that we created. You know, so class of service is the name of the file. So when you go in there to edit things, you know, you're going to go, you're going to edit the class of service file in model group two because mm-hmm. it goes on those models. And so your configuration is broken up along mo- multiple files and multiple groups but you're speaking once you're making one and only one edit to that command. So, so let's talk about those config files for a second. Are, are those as simple as CLI commands or are you using yes. a programmatic interface? Yeah, they're a CLI command. Okay. The, this is the, this is where we're saving the CLI command that's going to be pushed out. Okay. And that CLI command, like I'm, I'm assuming it doesn't have things like you know go into configuration mode and stuff like that. It's just the the config no. that you're delivering when you're in config mode, and then it's going to be committed at the end of the process and so on. Exactly. Yeah, it's just the exact config. And then here's where the next nuance to those come in is because Juniper devices are hierarchical. There's sometimes when you have to have delete commands as part of that too. Yes. Yes, or in the Cisco world, it would be a no, and then negating the right thing. But uh, right, yep. So, so there's a there's a management structure that goes with that too. So that okay. when these get applied, it makes sure you remove what's there first and apply this and compare. Yeah. Now, another thing I said at the top of the show was there's no run one right way to do this. You could have used maybe the NetComp interface that Junos offers, um, but you're doing CLI commands and. Why, well, why we, that direction? We, we are using the NetConf interface. That's how the physical connection occurs. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but you're not leaning into like uh, whatever their Python library was. Junos has some kind of a Python library. I, I've fiddled with it. I haven't done anything serious with it. But 
No, the 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 staff here is all really familiar with the CLI commands. So mm-hmm. it was it was simpler to to maintain the repositories as CLI commands because that's the that's easiest to check and and verify and make sure things are right at the beginning. I'm glad you said that because uh, part of what's almost humorous to me, like if you're working with Python and uh, you know, the Genie parser and things like that, is you're still interacting with the CLI, you know, at the end of the day. So everyone's making a big deal about, uh, you know, programmatic data and uh, structured data, which is very key, but the way you're getting it isn't the uh, JSON payload that's delivered to you. You're getting a CLI output delivered to you that you're converting into JSON, et cetera. The CLI is still important and actually really matters. It's not like the CLI goes away. It's you're interacting with it in a different way. And so you're pointing out something, Steve, that I think is key, that the CLI still matters here, but not because you're logging into a device with SSH and then typing away on the keyboard. You're accessing the CLI in a way that is uh, programmatic, but yet quite familiar. Yeah, and at this point of the process, we're talking about generating what you're going to push to you know hundreds of devices. So the the most important part of this phase is that it's right. So, yes. <laughs> so you want to make sure that you're doing it in a way that's most familiar to the people who have to generate it so that it's right. <laughs> okay, so let's let's kind of take stock of where we're at here. I've got I'm I'm in I'm in GitLab. There are a bunch of configuration um little artifacts there. Things where you're only going to have to change it once and that will uh, flow down to everywhere else that um, well, I'm assuming there's some master process here that's going to pull all this together for us, but but that's where, mm-hmm. I, where I'm at. I've got all these little config artifacts that I need to be able to successfully configure 14 different models out there. Well, seven, seven ultimately, the way you guys boiled it down. Mm-hmm. What happens next? So I've got this, let's say I've got, these are all my golden configs. They're tested, they're proven and now I'm in a situation where I want to. What, what what do you do? Do you do you just go out there and make sure they're all matched up? Do you like have a? It's Saturday, time to you know push the latest, or what do you do? <laughs> well, now we're starting to build out more of a process. You know, like I said, we've been doing automation for a really long time, and you know the one of the other goals of this particular project was to become more formalized in the the testing and deployment process because um, you know so far we've been doing things with the you know the local scripter figuring things out on their you know on their local laptop and whatever devices they have access to and then you know when they're comfortable going ahead and and pushing things out and again working with our developers you know they were um suggesting we move to a more formal formal process. So in our GitLab, we're, we move towards a branching strategy. And so we're not just having things in GitLab and version controlled, but we would have um, not just the master branch that's created by default, but we're gonna create a lab branch too, so that, um, we would branch off of master and there would be a separate thing for the for the lab. And then uh, off of the lab branch, we would be pulling feature branches. Um, so in the software development world, when you make a, you know, when you make a change, you're pulling a feature branch, you work on your feature branch, and then you commit it back to your, 
to your main branch. So our branching strategy was to do feature branches off of lab, merge those into lab for um, for lab testing, and then merge the lab into uh, master in order to go to production. So that gives us the full stepwise process where the developer of the of the scripting is going to be testing on their laptop when they're comfortable with the laptop they're going to merge it into lab and it'll test in our lab which is a completely isolated lab environment and then when we're seeing that it works correctly in the lab we go ahead and merge it to production and in production, you know, since we're we've become even more careful <laughs> over time, we have a, a bunch of devices in production that we euphemistically call the production lab, which is a separate ring and collection of devices where we do things often first as well. <laughs> so, the, uh, the the safer guinea pigs, yes, they're live, but yeah, if we blow it up, it hurts, but not so bad. So yeah, you guys are up first. Hope it all works out. <laughs> Yes, I know what you mean. Now, I think there's a, a couple of things I want to ask you or, or point out. One is you said formalize. This process is going to be familiar to a lot of network engineers. You do it in the lab, you test it, and then when it's you're pretty confident you got something good here, then you begin pushing it out to your low-risk production environment first. Now, you might have done that by hand, but that process is familiar. You formalized it where there's branches that you're maintaining code and its status and you're doing merges and... Uh, and so on in that way. Another point I want to make or question I want to ask really is you said our devs told us to formalize. Does that mean you are going to them as consultants basically because they develop applications and they know things or are they actually developing tools for you to use as network engineers? It's really both of that way, way back. <laughs> Don't consider myself a developer today, but you know I developed web, uh, you know, PHP applications 20 years ago, uh, you know, using SVN and version control. So I was aware of these processes and structures, but now I'm really a network engineer. We have professional developers doing our in-house application. Um, so I wanted to leverage, you know, their their tools that they're already using and we've already deployed. So, you know, we didn't have to install GitLab. It was already here, you know. <laughs> we didn't have to install the message bus. It was already here, you know. Uh, Jenkins was already in use for, um, by them originally as well. So these are all tools that were already in the environment and we had people familiar with them that are do that we're using them. So this is kind of like merging and using them, like you said, as consultants. Um, but we're also working on things together because the application they developed in-house is the source of truth for our devices on the network, you know, which and that application itself has been in existence over 10 years as well. So so they are part of the the solution, but they're also part of the consulting that's going on here too. Okay, Steve, good to know. It's, it's come up on the show a number of times. Like Jeremy Schulman uh, is um, fairly outspoken on the topic of you should have a developer that is dedicated to your team to help write tools. You shouldn't necessarily be writing tools if you don't have to, you know, that kind of thing. He's talked about that. It's just, that's a scale thing. Not every company is going to be able to, to do that, but good, good point to make. 
so I, I want to go to the next phase here because I kind of my brain is sort of stuck on how I get from all of these configuration artifacts that have been that are sitting in a GitLab repository. There's a testing process. How do I actually deploy all this stuff now? What, what get me to that next place where we're taking things out of the the repo and pushing them into devices? So that's the role that Jenkins is is playing in the in the process. So on the Jenkins server, it's detecting that a commit has occurred uh, in the in the relevant branch, and then we have that structure we mentioned with the table that shows you know what config fragments need to be assembled for each type of of device. So if you're going down the column for the MX um, devices, there's a checkbox next to you know a half a dozen different um, rows. Everything that's in those folders that we've created for those rows needs to be gathered up and assembled into the artifact for the MX. So the the form with the columns and rows is something that a script will actually read as a source of truth, or you yes. as humans use that to build a folder structure. Both. We're we're using it to build the folder structure in the repository. The files are named for that category we created. The commands are put in once and only once in the correct fragment. When the commit occurs to the to the relevant branch, that table is also saved in um, in the structure. And now we have a script that goes off. And um, and assembles all of those relevant fragments. So it says for this MX platform, these six set of fragments get gathered together, merged into an artifact, and saved in the artifactory. And for the next column, you know, for the ACX twenty two hundred series, these seven sets of fragments get gathered up and created into an artifact for the next model, etc. Each so one gets gathered up. You just described a script here that reads this. Is that all that this particular script does is basically build um, artifacts that go in, as you said, the artifactory? Yes. Yeah. So that particular script, that's the first step in the process of the flow of the flow that um, that the pipeline is doing is it's creating the artifacts. Okay. So so now they're the Lego bricks have been assembled into some little Lego thing that now is ready to be pushed to an appropriate device, the, the, the device model and Juno's version that it matches to. How does that bit happen? All right. So then the next phase of the, uh, of the process is um, we go to the, the source of truth for the, for the network devices and we get a list of each model device. Um, and then that artifact for that device is compared to what's currently on that device. So we do, you know, what would the change be? We do a show compare in the Junos world <laughs> and, and save that and then roll it back and move on to the next one. And so we're doing a just a show compare on on every device in every category. You don't even okay. So step one, you don't even do anything. You just go out there and look and say, okay, if I were to, if I if I were to make a change, what would the change look like? And so you're saving right. all of those per 
This is per NED, per per individual uh, network device that's out there. Right. Every device that's a separate saved file. Wow, you guys are cautious. Okay. Then the next step in the process is there's another script that then looks at all those show compares and gathers them into the same groups. So it says this this is the 15 show compares that are going to make this change. This is the 17 show compares that are going to make this set of changes. This is the everything. You're so you're leaning into unique config groups. You're effectively doing an idempotent sort of a uh, kind of. It's it's a stretch to, to call that. It's not exactly what that means, but you're you're basically saying, "Hey Junos, this is where I'm trying to get. Tell me what I need to get." to this and the Junos on each individual device spits back. This is what you need. This is the difference between where I am and what you think I should be. And so you're actually building a library of commands. <laughs> okay. Not, not commands. This well, is the act would be the results. Yes, of those commands. Yes. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. Okay. Man. Okay. This is, I'm with you. Keep going. Yeah, we're a service provider. We have to be super careful what we push out on our network because it could be service vecting. So now all of these different checks are uniquely grouped into groups. And now we have a report that that goes to the, the senior engineering group and, and manager for review. And so we have, say, a dozen groups of unique changes. They can each be individually uh, looked at and say, this looks good. This looks good. I'm, I'm worried about this one, you know, or, you know, why is this one this way? This is weird, et cetera. So now we have our unique set of changes that can then be scheduled and you approve them as a group. Hmm. Okay. So the robots gather the data, spit out the configuration, or, you know, you, you end up with you know, the changes that are going to be made. You then have humans review what the robots are saying would need to be done uh, and then you can approve or deny uh, right down to an individual device level. I don't like the people in this town. Let's run the change there. See what happens. Because like I said, I don't like them anyway. No, they, this is happening on the groups of u- uh, unique changes. Because what we're looking at is, you know, do we think this change, h- how drastic is this change? And is it going to be something that, you know, needs to be, will be service affecting? So, so not will... not quite down to the device level, right? Groups of changes. Okay. Okay. I was thinking too granularly at this point. All right. And so in, in most cases, you know, the, the configs are not going to be service change, uh, affecting. They're just going to, you know, fix things that are missing. And so they can be approved and go out and, you know, standard overnight change, change windows. But things that are going to be service affecting, then we have notification periods and formal processes that have to be followed to, you know, get this thing back up to snuff to where, where it needs to be. Now, for these elements along the way where the checking was done and the uh, the config, um, I was going to say config diff, that wasn't quite the right word, but uh, what you're gathering that information from each Junos box, was Jenkins doing that for you or something else that was running that? Yeah, Jenkins is, is a workflow process. So every one of those steps is a different step in the workflow. And then Jenkins can go off and run things for you. Uh, and so every one of those is a step in the Jenkins for workflow. And so that report that you were talking about, uh, that was a thing that Jenkins would have uh, created for you, or at least run a script that created it for you. Yeah, yeah. 
most of this is Python. Some of it's Ansible for parallelization. Um, <laughs> some of it is Python wrapped in an Ansible playbook, you know, because we wanted to parallelize stuff uh, and it makes it easier to parallelize in, uh, in, in Ansible. Parallelizes and run this to a whole bunch of devices, not serial one device at a time waiting for all the interaction, which adds a lot of time because you're waiting. Yeah, exactly. Because we have 1,800 devices and we don't want to do them one at a time. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And async in Python only gets you so far. Yeah. So now we're at a place where the changes have been approved. Now, does that, is there some kind of a, a trigger there where, where Jenkins will be notified, hey, this has been approved and then you can run from there? Yeah. Yeah. Then the, the workflow can continue from there on the approved changes. And then they go out and, and apply to the to the devices in that group. So group by group, they get approved and continue. When Jenkins pushes the change, can you talk about what testing is done to validate that the change has gone through and things are okay? We go back to the the original part of the process because what this what this is validating is is that common config there or not. So. If um, if it worked correctly, the the next run of the config checks, these devices will no longer be on them. That is, they will not be flagged as something where a change needs to be made because, hey, they match up. The config exists now. Yep. There are no changes to be pushed because... And and that's that's the beauty of the show compare process. So the, the biggest group you get back is the show compare is nothing. You know? Yes. Yes. <laughs> but okay, so in the, but what you're doing here, this is effectively configuration management. This I, I didn't hear you say, well, we have these tests that validate that the running environment on the switch or on the router as we run this test, the um like if you're doing a routing change, you could do something like after the change, this I had the same number of OSPF neighbors as when I started, you know, so I know all my adjacencies came back up after the change was made. You're not doing that sort of a change, it doesn't sound like. No, those changes are done before um, this process. This process is we validated things that should be on every device, hmm. um, you know. So, so it's going into the common config that gets pushed out to every device that's not service specific. It's common across all the devices. So those tests were run in conjunction with our provisioning vendors and the like to, to validate what needs to happen. So because your process works in that way, there's an assumption you have at this point when you're actually pushing out config that when we put this config in, because we did our testing and understand how our network works, we know that when these configuration artifacts are present on the device, they're going to work as expected. Exactly. Okay. So, so one difference between this and what some commercial solutions would talk about, um, commercial solutions talk sometimes about closed loop automation where, yep, we push the change and then we validate that everything's working because we do a bunch of show commands and um, they can get deep into your your database and your forwarding tables and so on and demonstrate that it is working as as we intend. Like there, if it was the Cisco world, you'd be saying show whatever and the results mm -hmm. that they get back are interpreted in such a way that they know the configuration that's on there is valid. You've got your neighbors, you've got things in the routing table as such. 
what you guys have done is a little different in that you've said, we know where we want to get. We figured out in the lab how to get there. This system is pushing the config out the door and being very sure that the config is exactly what it needs to be to deliver that result. But you're not actually checking the result. It's just, again, it's it's an inference that the result is um, what it should be. Yeah, I mean, those other things you mentioned are things we do in other automation processes. So for, you know, for actual service provisioning or other things of that nature, yeah, then there's there's pre-checks, post-checks. Or if we're doing, say, you know, fiber maintenance and, you know, we have to, we have to cut a fiber that goes across a bridge and move it because the state makes you, yes. <laughs> you know, change what conduit you're in, you know, we, we have pre-checks you know what's the state of the network before that that happened that that runs we have um you know monitoring for service uh you know service validation and redundancies during the event and then we have post-checks you know did everything go back to the way it was of course so that's a a different set of automation tools Mm -hmm. that we're using for those oh there's there's a lot a lot here there's a lot of moving moving pieces. How long did it take you to build, you know, going back to our config discussion here with your grid and GitLab and building up the repo, how long did it take to develop that system? That was, you know, the, the main, the main work on it was probably maybe six months in, uh, in duration, um, from, from start to finish. And of course, you know, this is the type of project that keeps on giving, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's never truly done. <laughs> I like that you said it took six months. Uh and I'm I'm guessing this was kind of a was it a spare time six months or did, did anybody have time to really sit and focus on it? No, we had a we had a focused period that's was um say sixty sixty to ninety days on it with um four people. Uh you know, pretty much spent in a big chunk of time every week on it to get when, it over the hump. When you got this in place, you were over the hump and it was, now you're using it in production. Can you get a sense of like, uh, what were the wins you got from having deployed that system? And what were there any problems or unexpected things that showed up? Well, the, the, major, the major win and the reason we were doing it was there were these oddball tickets that would come in, you know, because of a, you know, a problem occurred on a, on a service. And typically it was, you know, something went from a primary path to, you know, their, their backup path. And then, you know, there was packet loss or, or some kind of instability on it as a result. And, you know, it ended up being, you know, this one device in that path was missing this piece of common config, you know, and therefore (laughs) it was causing Mm. the, the service related issues. So those types of tickets have gone, you know, way, way down as a, as a result of this, because, you know, we, we now have confidence that that, that particular set of configuration has been pushed out to to the devices and we're working now on the next level of <laughs> consistency and problems. Well, do, so uh, that's interesting. Do you, do you run this pipeline periodically? Like, I don't know, once a week or once a day or something, just to make sure that everybody's up to date. This can be run manually, which we don't do very, very often, but it, it is run automatically when, uh, when the commits occur. 
to, that say a change has, has occurred to go out and see who's there. And, and part of what we've been doing since then is, uh, you know, we focused on the service affecting things in the, in that first, the first round. And now we're going through, going back through other common things that are, you know, more management related service related and things, things of that nature. Okay. So you, you will know if there's config drift because you can react to a, to a, the trigger of a change, some device says something changed. You just right. then you go go out automatically. You can go out and just now you're going to pull the thing and start the pipeline mm-hmm. effectively in Jenkins. It monitors for the merges to that branch. Now I'm just thinking about all of this and I'm smirking because it's like, okay, it took these guys six months to pull this off and get this system uh, down. And I'm sure there were some aha moments along the way. And you had some developers that were <laughs> counseling you and guiding you on just how this should be built. So you learn things like the make the change once principle and uh, and so on. It's like, I want to do this in the lab. Wait a minute. When am I going to find time to build this thing? I don't know. <laughs> it sounds a little intimidating, but any any shortcuts or something you'd recommend for someone who wants to get started playing with this sort of an approach to config management? Yeah, I don't know if there are shortcuts. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Steve. You're supposed to de- just deliver it on a silver platter for us. Uh, I would. I mean the the place the place I think to start um, for these is to is is to be familiar with version control. I mean, because this is all driven off off being able to do version control. And so, for the common configs, you know, figuring out. Um, to to me the biggest the biggest parts of this was the speak once and the and the repositories so you know once you know how to organize your your material you know then it it starts building from there if you start with a simple configuration artifact too i think that that can help you know a low risk sort of a change something simple like i said you know ntp you know in the yeah. intro there that's pretty straightforward that's pretty low risk you can uh, get something going there i am imagining steve that even with uh, devs giving you some of those insights ahead of time you still must have had as a group uh, aha moments where it like hit you this was the right way to do it that kind of thing you need to work through the process to have those yeah yeah i think so and and this is an evolution too like i said we've been doing automation for you know 10 years long before i was at the company so you know they you know they started out with the same thing everybody else does you know here's a you know a simple one change script that goes out to a set of devices you manually feed it and and makes a change, you know, the, those are really still the places to start, you know, the, the, the low risk, simple changes, learn how the, the tools work, start to build from there. I definitely encourage people to use version control. You know, I, I just, you know, from the very beginning, you don't want to be, you know, naming your scripts, you know, old, old to new, newest, new, you know, <laughs> you you want to learn to you want to learn to use version control, uh, which today is is Git, but um, you know that's been around forever in the in the development world, and it it really is where you want to have your scripts. Um, but start with version control, do things small, uh, you know, bring it up along the way, and then add the complexities as they 
they make sense in your in your environment. We had talked about a message bus at the top. We can live without a message bus for uh, getting this off the ground. You need version control, um, mm-hmm. Git, GitHub, GitLab. You don't have to have a message bus. That provides you with some a lot of interesting things, but you don't have to have that to get that going. You could add Jenkins uh, next to this mix because Jenkins is going to hook into our version control and look for changes. Yeah, and and Git's been adding more and more of these features too. So you might be able to forego even using Jenkins. You could use the the pipeline manager that's now available in, in like Git, GitHub yeah. Actions, for example. Yeah. Uh, so if you have a short enough and um, and straightforward enough process, you could keep the whole thing in in Git. And um, you know, I, I think our developers have actually you know decom Jenkins and do most of their their production builds and things entirely in in GitLab now for uh, for for their side. So that's that's potentially an option too. What what a what a pipeline brings to you is is this process of doing separate things that are independent of each other and can be then triggered by something you know so it's initially triggered in, you know in our case by that commit the, uh, or that merge that occurs in the you know in the git repository um artifacts i think is the the next big thing is because um because most things are like this Juniper one is, you know, you're going to have this, if you want to follow that speak once principle, you're going to need to create artifacts automatically because you're not going to be able to create a single file. That's simple (laughs) for everything. You're going to quickly find the same thing we did. Maybe it won't be as complicated because you won't have 14 different devices and, dozens of groups, well, but you're uh, going to have some of it. You know, you've mentioned that in, in Juniper and the Junos world, which is kind of known for being able to do things the same. If you go to the Cisco world, it's a train wreck because of the variety of iOS platforms that are out there, how they do things, the different ways they have of expressing things, whether the version you're on supports VRFs in the management plane or not, for, for example, and on and on it goes. So uh, that that point is well made, Steve. Yeah, I think the the concept that's important to understand there with the artifact is you need artifacts when the file alone is not enough. You know, you're going to gather up multiple files to create a single thing to to do. So you're using your your version control to maintain your speak once files. And then the first thing that Jenkins does or, or any pipeline system does in a build is to grab the necessary files together and create that artifact. And so that's that concept, once that makes sense in your environment, then it makes sense to, to start doing a pipeline. You know, And then those artifacts are available for manual checks too. You know, Now I have an artifactory to go to to pull that artifact, if if I have a I have a trouble ticket and I'm on a particular device, I can go grab the artifact for that device and do a quick check manually because I'm working on a ticket and it's like this feels like something might be missing. I can go do a quick check. I I noted when you were describing the build uh, process with your your rows and your columns and your models that grid. and then how your how those artifacts are used to to uh, to build up the full configured device might need. 
that hit me like that's a that's a system that's a framework that I can extend across you know anything in the network device realm that I need can can do that once I have that system in place and I understand how that works I can build everything else on top of that and I love things like that yeah and then the rest of your pipeline flows from there you know what are you going to do with that artifact why did you create that artifact well you know what's the next step in the process put another piece in the pipeline, you know, and how, how paranoid are you like us, you know, <laughs> how many other check steps are going to be along the way for your, either your tests, if it's that kind of thing, or in this case, you know, your, you, you know, your scoping of, of what changes you're going to do before you do them. Your Jenkins pipeline, I'm guessing, isn't overly complicated. You're not spending a lot of time in Jenkins once you've got it set up. No, no, the Jenkins piece is really the simple part of it. I mean, the the guts of the work is writing all these scripts that do the work. Um, I mean, if you go if you go take the Jenkins tutorials, I mean, they they go in and say, "Oh, you just put your commands in this block here." Well, that's where the work is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all Jenkins is doing is controlling the order things happen in and and dependencies and things uh, along the way. <laughs> Yeah, I just took a three-hour course on kind of a crash course on Jenkins, trying to get a better set of it. This particular instructor instructor took you through the process of building a pipeline using a text file, a Jenkins file, and uh, building out pipeline, open brace, and then walking through the different stages and so on. And I'm looking at it going, this is the most straightforward thing in the world. It was really, it was really just that. It was straightforward. You know, there's nuance that you can get into, of course, and if you're a developer. Uh, writing Java code and needing to do builds and such. There's a lot of things that Jenkins helps you with there. But for infrastructure's code, for the kind of things we're looking for, it's just it just makes certain things easier because you're not triggering them by hand. Jenkins is doing it for you. But it wasn't hard. It's like once you get through building a few pipelines, it's you know, straightforward to me. Totally mm. agree. Mm. Okay. Well, Steve, this has been a it's been a great conversation. I, I've enjoyed this. These specific uh, conversations where you can take what we do as network engineers day to day and then translate it into automation and infrastructure as code in a practical way is uh, is a great conversation to have because people that are getting stuck here are just at the early phase where they got a mishmash of Python scripts kind of hanging around on somebody's laptop and they know they got to do better but aren't sure where to go next. Um, you, you've really put some strong framework around it with uh, with version control. Uh, message buses are interesting. Maybe that's a different conversation we have some other time. And uh, you know, Jenkins is a pipeline for testing and building out configuration artifacts. This is great stuff. Now, Steve, are you uh, active online? Are you a Twitter person? Do you have a blog? Anything like that you'd like to share with folks? Sure, I have uh, I have a blog on my uh, on my own website. My domain is my last name, uh, Paluka dot com, P U L U K A, and uh, I use my first initial last name as Paluka on social media. So mainly, I'm on Twitter and and LinkedIn. Definitely open to connecting with anybody. Now, are you out there? Are you actually more like me where it's like once in a while I pop in, oh, I should check my Twitter? Or are you actually uh, aggressive out there? I wouldn't say aggressive. I post post links to things, you know, maybe three or four times a week, uh, try to... Try to maintain a, a reasonable presence. Um, 
you know, I've been blogging uh, since before they were called blogs <laughs> you know, right. on, on my own domain. Cause I, I, yeah, I bought my name, you know, so you could email me at steve at palooka.com uh, back when I was a web developer. So you wanted to have your own, own domain. So you have a MySpace page, Steve, is that what we're saying here? <laughs> no, I, I skipped MySpace. <laughs> I did. Uh, I was on GeoCities, but <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, Trump card. All right, boom. Uh, all right. Well, again, Steve, thank you very much for joining us on Packet Pushes Heavy Networking today. Uh, I am Ethan Banks. Uh, you can find this and many more of our fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. Community blog that is, you can write and share your knowledge. All at Packet Pushers. .net. If you'd like to be social and hang out with people like Steve and me and Greg Farrow and Drew and a whole bunch of folks from the Packet Pushers community, we have a Slack channel. It's free. Just go join it. Packetpushers.net slash Slack. Read the rules. There's three simple rules so you can be a good citizen in our Slack channel. Join up. There's already 1,500 people there and they're having nerdy conversations pretty much every day. Somebody's coming up with like, I have this firewall and I have this VPN problem. Have any of you seen this? And then a conversation ensues. Things like that are happening all the time. We also have a newsletter, packetpushers.net slash newsletter, also free. Go get you one. We come comes out once a week and we don't sell your information because that would suck. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Packet Pushers. We are on LinkedIn as well. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>